Welcome back to episode 28 of 52 Founders. I'm Chrissy Costa, and this week I'm so excited to be joined by Scott Norton, co-founder of Sir Kensington's, a condiment maker focused on using real whole food ingredients. Nearly a decade ago, Scott and his co-founder Mark saw that amidst the food evolution, condiments were being left behind, and so Sir Kensington's was born to fill this gap. The company has entered a new phase of growth after its recent acquisition by Unilever, so I'm particularly excited for you all to hear about the company's origins, as well as what the future might hold for Sir Kensington's. And now, here's Scott. pleasure having you. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure and an honor for me too. Great. So let's get started. Start by telling us about Sir Kensington's and what it is for those of us that might have been living under a rock and not know. Well, at Sir Kensington's, we make condiments with character. So that's ketchup, mustard, mayo, uh, including an eggless mayo made with real whole food ingredients. We believe that condiments are food too. And it all really started about nine years ago when we had this realization that every category of food in America was evolving and was moving forward, but condiments had really been left behind. So there was, you know, an interest in organic dairy and grass-fed beef, uh, but condiments and specifically ketchup, this quintessential American food, had really been overlooked and and hadn't evolved in 70 years. It, It was high fructose corn syrup, tomato concentrate, And we started with ketchup because it was so uh, overlooked. And now as a company, our mission is to bring integrity and charm to ordinary and overlooked foods. And we're starting with condiments. So you plan on, you know, evolving past condiments then? I can't say that we have specific plans to, but, you know, I think that with this kind of thing, you want to see, you want to build a platform and then see where it goes and see what kind of potential you can develop in the future. So right now, we're fully focused on becoming America's leading natural condiment brand. That's what we do. We make condiments. And, and, and condiments are really special because condiments are this intersection between cooking and eating. And mm-hmm. condiments allow us to, to make, our, make our foods individualized for ourselves to make them taste how, we want to, how they want to taste. And they're also this universal thing that everyone has a relationship with. So no plans as of yet, but there's a reason why the word food is in our mission and not condiment. We want to connect to something greater and potentially play in a greater space. And you know what's so interesting is that I remember when I first tried your ketchup and I loved it, but it was so much less sweet than what I grew up associating ketchup with. So how was it challenging to change people's perspective of what condiment should taste like, given how what we're used to, like, say, growing up with Heinz? Well, the, um, the key... The key word you used in that question is the word people. Mm-hmm. And people are not all the same. And that's the really important part about introducing any new product to the market is you've got to know what subset of people are going to be predisposed to liking what you do and what subset of people are predisposed to resisting what you do. Mm. And so for us, we knew that we couldn't just be in you know, Walmart overnight. We couldn't launch and put this in every store We needed to find the people that were the food community, the food movement, the people that appreciated what we had to offer and actually maybe had a more savory flavor profile, someone such as yourself. It's Mm -hmm. always a real challenge to find that balance between 
how do you make a product that is the right balance of novelty and nostalgia? Mm. I think as human beings, we fundamentally like to be comfortable, but we also like to explore. We love our lives, but we also like to go on vacation. And having one foot in the familiar and one foot in the adventure, that's sort of, I think, what life is all about. And I think that that's what our condiments are all about. That, that balance and that um, intersection is different for every person. But our approach has been, as culture has, I think, skewed more and more towards predisposal to liking natural foods, um, foods that are kind of more complex, layered flavor profile, um, foods with less sugar. As, as the uh, community and as culture has sort of shifted towards that, we've gotten more and more popular and we've been able to lean into that. Yes. And I'm curious, though, were you did you find it daunting, though, to go up to, against such large industry incumbents? Or do you feel like you're not really stealing from their market share because you're going after customers that might be different um, or might have a different flavor profile than the ones that they go after? A lot of people think that business is you know, fundamentally competitive, but I really see it as fundamentally creative. And I don't have kinds in mind, you know, when, when we're coming up with the products. I don't really have them in mind when we're thinking about designing our label or, or you know, working with restaurants. When you, you know, using this phrase, like to go up against them, right? It's mm-hmm. not like we, we create a competitive strategy based around what they do. Um, you know, instead, we really think about how do we create the best product that we possibly can that's to our liking, that our community is going to love. And if they choose to adopt it, they choose to adopt it. And yes, of course, we're both called ketchup. We both go on sandwiches. We make mayo, too, um, that goes on sandwiches. Um, and arguably, we just got acquired by one of our competitors, uh, yeah. which is Unilever, who owns Hellman's. Uh, but at the same time, there's uh, we don't see it necessarily as a, a one-to-one trade-off. I think there's different uh, there's different use occasions, and there's also um, there's also different types of people out there. But very importantly, it's not necessarily that we see it just as stealing share, even though, of course, that happens. Every, you know, a lot, of, a lot of the business that we have is share that we've taken from other brands. Right. So more expanding the pie than necessarily eating away at it. Yeah, to some degree. Right. I mean, of course, you know, at a restaurant, when, when we work with restaurants and the restaurant stops serving Heinz and they start serving Sir Kensington's, that's a one-to-one switch, you know? We've made the market bigger because our product is more expensive than Heinz, um, but the consumption switches over, you know, one to one. Good point. And so we just talked uh, briefly about this, but you're in New York, and was it a strategic decision to base the company in New York, or did you find yourself there? And and what are the benefits you see to being a New York-based company? That's a great question. It was strategic. Um, I actually. I moved here to join my co-founder, Mark, and start this business. And I actually had a lot of trepidation. And I, I didn't really want to move to New York. I'm originally from San Francisco. I was living in Asia at the time. And I thought, oh, do I really want to go to New York? It's cold in the winter and everything is really expensive. By the way, this was, you know, seven years ago, back before San Francisco was also ridiculously expensive. <laughs> um, but... I, you know, and people are kind of brusque and it's filthy, but it's the capital of the Western food world, especially in terms of restaurants and chefs. 
Yes. And I think that everywhere from, you know, Melbourne to LA to London, um, people are looking to New York for culinary trends and restaurant trends. Of mm. course, Chicago, Mexico City, you know, Sydney, uh, Bangkok has cutting edge, bleeding edge culinary innovation. But I think that in terms of like pound for pound, block for block, New York is a pretty important place and pretty dense. And that density and diversity is also an incredibly important part to why New York is an amazing startup hotbed and an amazing um, entrepreneurial hotbed. Because in any given night, you're meeting and rubbing shoulders with and, and getting introduced to people that are in, you know, in the arts or that are in um, digital communications or in finance. Uh, or, you know, people that are maybe uh, designers. And, and, and there's a great dynamism and diversity of New York. And I think, you know, L.A. to some extent, of course, has this, but it's also very much an industry town around entertainment. Mm-hmm. San Francisco, especially San Francisco proper, is an absolutely an industry town in terms of technology. So I think that the, de- the, the diversity of thought and the diversity of backgrounds and creativity is really important because when you're starting a startup, you need people of all different skills and all different uh, colors of talent. And that, that's been really important for our success here. I, I actually wholeheartedly agree. And I think it's one of the reasons why I do think, um, although L.A. is an industry town, it's it's going to benefit the startup scene as that becomes less and less important. I, I do think after living in San Francisco and New York and Chicago, you see how it infiltrates the startup scene here. And I think actually startups benefit a lot from having that diversity that you mentioned. Definitely. So great. Let's though move into you specifically. So you mentioned that you are from San Francisco. Did you spend your entire childhood there? I was born in San Francisco in the city itself. And then when I was very young, my, my parents and my, my family moved down to the peninsula. So I grew up uh, in the Bay Area, uh, about 30 minutes south of San Francisco. And I lived there until I was 18. Yeah, until I moved to college. And so what did your parents do for a living? Were they in the tech scene? They were tech adjacent. So they worked in film and television. They were producers. And they worked in entertainment and television and broadcast. And then when I was very young, my mother uh, decided to start, my father joined her, a uh, corporate communications company. So making film and, and television videos for biotechnology companies, technology companies, um, and uh, other companies, life sciences in that space. My mother's uh, a, a producer and my father's a director. So he's more creative and she's a little bit more business and entrepreneurial. And um, I'm very much a blend of the two of them in terms of personality and just in terms of predilection. I love that. So entrepreneurship to you is not a foreign concept at all. You saw it firsthand growing up. I saw it firsthand in a lot of ways. You know, I saw it firsthand, of course, in my parents creating their own business and making their own luck. But also, you know, I grew up in, in the late 90s in Silicon Valley. And so, I mean, it was sort of like everybody's parents were like venture capitalists or entrepreneurs. And, you know, these companies, be it Yahoo or Google or, you know, Oracle, were these were like, this was, it was a company town with these things. And so I think that I've always been interested in technology and in entrepreneurship and kind of this idea that business can play a really important role in shaping 
what the future experience of human beings will be like. And that's, I, that's very much ingrained in my DNA. So what did you want to be when you were a child, when you grew up? Um, man, I, you know, an astronaut, <laughs> <laughs> my uh, grandfather was a, in, in, he went to West Point and he was a B-17 pilot in World War II based in, in uh, England and he would bomb in Germany. And then afterwards, he became a physicist for the U.S. Air Force. Uh, my, my dad was born on Air Force, on an Air Force base, and um, he, was ba- he was like actually a rocket scientist. And I was, I was just in love with space and, and with uh, science and engineering and then I realized that, like, I could, you know, if you miss one day in 10th grade algebra two, basically all math doesn't make sense for the next three years. <laughs> so I couldn't become an astronaut. It was too hard to catch up for missing that one day. Yeah, which, by the way, is a big, big problem with the way that math is taught in this country. Um, yeah, I think I that there's so much work that needs to be done to make this country more numerate and recognize the power of math. I think the way that they teach it in schools is tough. I don't, I don't have a better system. There's this great, there was this great story I think in New York Times Magazine about the new math, that math is typically taught with a me, we, you approach, where the teacher will do the, the we on the board show, or the, they'll do the me on the board, which is they'll show how a math problem is done. And then step two, the we, they'll all walk through it together as a class. And then third, they ask individual students to do it. Mm-hmm. Um, and the flip side of that, doing a you, we, me approach where every student tries to apply their own logic to it, um, that, and then solve it as a group and then solve it in the proper way, I think is probably a better way to do it. But I know I'm now ranting about math. No, I actually, I find this really interesting. Um, I went to college to be a math major and I remember studying for the GMAT and math was my strong suit. And I just I remember he would, I was in this course and he would teach you one way to solve a problem. But I talked to my teacher after and was like, well, actually, I think about it this way. He's like, no, yeah, you're, you're right. You can think about it that way, whatever is easier for you. Um, and so it's funny because if you adopt their approaches, sometimes I would find I was doing worse on testing when I would try to think about it in a way that other people were telling me to think about it. So I. Yeah, I, exactly. It, it just becomes like pattern matching, which actually doesn't. Right you know, teach you how to think as critically. I agree. Um, I mean, I, I think there are a lot of problems with our education system, but we can talk about that at another time. Sure. Um, so speaking of education, though, growing up in the Valley, did you ever think about not going to college? Or, or did you think about entrepreneurship as a viable career when you were getting ready to go to college? Um, or did you want to study something else in college? Um, well, I definitely always thought I would go to college. I mean, I'm a, I love to learn. I loved like people like skipped class in college and I like loved going to class. Like I, mm-hmm. I thought that was great. Um, I thought it was an awesome opportunity and I, I just love to learn in general and I'm very curious. And so I did think about entrepreneurship, but I never thought I would be an entrepreneur so soon in my life. I thought it would be something that happened like much later down the line. And then, you know, a couple of years after I really just two years after I graduated uh, from college and I, I was working, actually, I studied economics and I was working uh, in finance on a high frequency trading uh, equity desk in, in Tokyo. And that to me, just it wasn't as fulfilling. I didn't feel like I had was having an impact on culture. And uh, so a friend and I decided to 
to ride folding bicycles around Asia for 10 months. Wow. And then after that, that's when I started to Kensington's. And I think that that happened much, much more quickly than I thought. But I realized that here I am, I'm 23 or 24 years old. I don't have a family. I don't have a mortgage. I don't have anything to lose. Um, I feel like I'm ahead of my game right now. And so let's just give it a shot. Yeah, I, I totally agree. Um, but then again, I probably have a higher risk tolerance than most people. I think what's, what's interesting, you just mentioned, I so I went to Japan for the first time and I was kind of blown away by the flavor profiles of the country. And so do you ever incorporate your time living in Asia into your products? Absolutely. Yeah, I think, um, well, Asia, I mean, Asia in general, yeah. I would say Japan even more specifically. Mm-hmm. You know, I think like, for instance, in in Japanese culture, illustrated mascots are much, much more common. You know, like even like maybe the local community center or uh, like an electric and gas utility company might have their own illustrated mascot. Mm-hmm. And so for me, like, I think it was really natural that we would, of course, have Sir Kensington, this character that is a caricature and that personifies the product in a really natural way. I think there's also, you know, a certain reverence that's given to packaging in Japan, because especially mm-hmm. in food, there's a craft that goes into a lot of the food there and um, really just an attention to detail across the board. Everything is considered. And so, of course, the packaging, too, needs to have that that craft in consideration. And so that was always, you know, realizing that what you're doing is also an art object as well. Um, and should be appreciated fully. I think that has bled very much into our nature of our of our products. There are also more, you know, business concepts. For instance, Kaizen, the concept of continuous improvement, which mm-hmm. is used in uh, Japanese manufacturing and, and like famously in the Toyota manufacturing method, where you rec- you're always aware that there's a better way to be doing what you're doing. And so the question is, it's not to, you know, just wholesale accept or reject your your process, but it's to look for the flaws and have those those benefits compound over time. And the attitude of continuous improvement, while it seems like you're maybe making just a little bit of progress, actually can create breakthroughs. Yes. We talk about Kaizen a lot in business school, actually. And so I'm curious, though, you have no culinary background, so to speak. So how do you, you see this opportunity? What is the first thing you do to really be like, how can we create a formula that's different than what's out there? Well, because we didn't have a, a culinary background, we felt like we we didn't know what we didn't know and we couldn't claim to be experts. So we took approach of uh, collaboration and co-creation and we, we did a rapid prototyping of six different catch-ups and we gave them all random numbers we invited 30 of our friends by slipping invitations into their mailboxes that said, Sir Kensington invites you to a ketchup tasting. This was in college at the time when we were still just coming up with a recipe. And um, they came over and they tasted the, the ketchup and they scored them, uh, ranked them. And that helped us understand what were the ketchups that people actually liked and what were the ones they didn't. Because if we had even created a bad ketchup and put it out there, then people still would have supported us because they were our friends. So the question is like, you know, how do you get either support from people that aren't your friends or find a way that your friends can have permission to dislike what you make 
And the way to do that is by having them compare it to something else that you made so that they can like that. Mm-hmm. And so you keep mentioning this character, Sir Kensington. How did you come up with him and, and what was your original concept for that as well? When we were starting, we, we realized that um, the supermarket is absolutely an attention war. And in order to stand out, in order to get people to do a double take and, and look at it and realize, hey, that's different and that's better, you've got to be dramatically different. So whereas every ketchup went in, went, went in a, a glass bottle, oh, sorry, a, a plastic bottle, we chose uh, to package it in glass, which is more of a high-end premium you know, preserved packaging. And whereas uh, other ketchups, for instance, were squeezed, uh, we said ours would be a scooping ketchup. It would have a wide mouth jar that was much more special and kind of doled out teaspoon by teaspoon. And then finally, since ketchup, what was out there, commodity ketchup, really had this Americana mainstream positioning, we said, let's be a little bit quirky and quixotic and let's be British. So we created Sir Kensington as this eccentric character to sort of represent the soul of the brand, represent the integrity and charm of a Victorian naturalist, a botanist, a spice trader, uh, kind of a curious culinary character, as we say. I love it. I also love that you use quixotic. I, I feel like that's a word I so rarely get to hear. Yeah, yeah, I love I love that word because um, I, I love that it's like based around Don Quixote and Sancho Panza and this like crazy adventure that they had. So yeah, it's a great word. And so before we dive into the final few fun questions to round out the interview. You know, I've talked to a few founders now that have exited. And I'm curious, what's been the hardest or most surprising thing about being acquired by such a large company and kind of being propelled from a startup into a corporation? Well, I, you know, I wish I could answer that question in more detail, but we were acquired last month. Yes. And <laughs> there, there hasn't really been an instantaneous change. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, if anything, possibly the surprise is that not much has changed. And that's really by design. You know, uh, they they respect that we're doing. They respect the culture that, that we're building. They recognize that we have a winning formula that they want to be able to add a measured amount of fuel to the fire of. Um, but, I do, you know, I, I don't think that, uh, you know, there's not too many surprises. I think one great surprise is that we have team members that are learning what they're doing for the first time. And they have the equivalent of our team members. They have entire departments that have been doing this for decades, you know, and that is very powerful to find people that's on our side now that have that degree of mastery. In some areas, that mastery is extremely powerful, you know, in operations, quality assurance. In some area, especially marketing, for instance, mastery can be be very confusing because if you're an expert in an older version of the world, mm-hmm. um, you know, especially if you're used to a different media landscape or a different marketing landscape, it can be really challenging to interpret tactics uh, and strategies. But I think that great marketers and um, you know, great doers have first principles and they understand things on a strategic level that allows them to, to move from medium to medium. Um, but it's been refreshing, uh, the, the expertise that we now have at our disposal. Got it. Well, I think that's a thank you so much for sharing that. And I think though that that is an interesting take on it, especially when you say marketing. You know, I find that that's a discipline where being innovative in startup actually has a lot of advantages, especially around brand creation. 
But having yeah. a lasting brand, you know, there's still so much to learn from people that have actually grown a brand for decades. Yeah, definitely. That we we do have a lot to learn. Yeah. Uh, all right. So let's end with our fun questions. Um, and so I'd be remiss not to ask, what is your favorite Kensington product, Sir Kensington product? Sorry. Our spicy brown mustard is probably my my favorite. I uh, oh, I think okay. it's so versatile. It's so delicious. It won. Uh, gold in the worldwide mustard competition. Yes, mm-hmm. there are mustard competitions. And, um, <laughs> are they in a, Germany? It's a spectacular. I feel like because of the pretzels, I, I'd imagine they would be in Germany or something with pretzels oh, and mustard. Wisconsin. Oh, Wisconsin. Yes, yeah, very close. I, that's funny because I um, I used to work for a company. Was, I lived in Madison over the summer, uh, and I associate it with cheese, not mustard. So, Well, mustard and cheese go well together. I guess that's true. I just uh, maybe because the spicy brown mustard logo has a, a pretzel on it. I just think of sandwiches and pretzels with mustard. Uh, okay, so and then what is another New York startup that you really love? Ooh, oh, good question. Oh yeah, I I just met these guys from a company called Smallhold, and they make uh, indoor self-contained mushroom farms. They're oh. very cool. Wow, do you have one? I don't have one. They're really like more for like restaurants and almost like grocery stores. They're kind of like industrial size. They're building some shipping container farms in Bushwick. Um, But I have tasted the mushrooms, grilled them and and eaten them at restaurants. And they're excellent. That sounds really interesting and and very not what I would have thought of from New York. That's great. Yeah. I guess because of the space constraints, you have innovation um, in really interesting ways. Absolutely. Okay, and then finally, um, if you could interview one founder, who would you most want to interview and why? Oh, man. Um, I really love Warren Buffett, and I think that it would be awesome to interview him as a founder of Berkshire Hathaway. Mm-hmm. I guess he wasn't technically a founder of Berkshire Hathaway, but he is really a founder. The thing about Warren, though, is that there's so much out there about him, you know, with the biography mm-hmm. and the movie that it's like, I wonder what I would really bring to the table. Maybe I could yeah. bring some emotional content that wasn't previously surfaced, which I would like to do. Um, what is another, who's another founder that I'd like to interview? I mean, I would kind of love to interview the founder, you know, George Washington and the founding fathers of America to like really get inside their head because we talk about the constitution and the founding fathers, like we understand what they were really going for. And yet, yeah, it's written in the documents. But man, we all know that what what was spoken and what ends up on paper is different. And so I would just love to talk to those guys. This is by far the best answer I've ever heard. By the way, I feel like everyone says Jeff Bezos or Elon Musk. And I've I've never even thought about the founders of our country. But you're right. I think it's it's funny, especially in politics. And you see with the rise of, um, you know, the Tea Party so many years ago about being like so strict to the Constitution. It'd be interesting if that's ever what people intended it to be. Yeah, yeah, exactly. We may never know. All right. Well, thank you so much, Scott, for being on my show. This was really interesting to have you. Thank you so much, Chrissy. Appreciate it. All right. And that's a wrap for this week's episode of 52 Founders. Be sure to check out 52founders.com and follow us on Twitter at 52founders to stay up to date. I'm your host, Chrissy Costa, and I'll see you next week for another episode.